You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, beautiful people in Perth. Trent Fleskins here, as always, your host of The Perth Property Show. We are cracking on with our third segment of our built form masterclass, I guess we can call it. We've got one master in the room and I'm talking to him. It's Luke Parker from OP Properties. Thank you very much for coming in again, Luke. Uh, good morning, Trent, and good morning, listeners. Mate, we are talking about sales, marketing, and bank financing, bank funding today. That's after we've already spoken about finding the site and then getting that design through DA with all the consultants required. We now need to talk about how we're going to sell these apartments with a marketing strategy and where we're going to get the money to build them. We haven't even spoken about... Who's going to build him yet? Why is that? You definitely will be talking to probably your preferred builders prior to and at this point. The reason why we sort of left our detailed discussion around builder tendering and form of head contract to after sales marketing and bank funding is additional consultant costs in further design documentation. You typically wouldn't press the button on proceeding with those costs until you got comfortable around your pre-sales. And once you have your pre-sales in place or close to, then you start with your construction tendering. Why do you need pre-sales? You need pre-sales for your bank funding. Unless you are very wealthy and can cash fund your $10 million worth of construction. In my line of credit. Um, yeah, so if, if you're Trent, then, then uh, you just crack on with it, I guess. Um, <laughs> I wish. But um, if, you're, if, you, if you're Luke Parker or <laughs> most other people around Perth, then yeah, a form of funding is pretty important. Typically, if you're looking at your top four or, or your, your institutional larger banks. CBA, NAB, ANZ, Westpac, ANZ, yep, Bankwest. Bankwest any, any locally. Any of these that are favourites of yours who are actually pretty good right now in, in 2020? There are some who are horrible still, and there are some who are playing ball. The appetite generally is certainly increased from a, from a credit debt on apartment development point of view than what was six and 12 months ago. I think we've seen a lot of capital come back in on the East Coast, particularly part of the national debt portfolios. So that's that's where they've got, you know, of the larger banks, they have a certain proportion which goes towards industrial and commercial and then, then residential. I think the East Coast was getting a lot of that debt. A lot of that's coming back in with completed developments. I think also the banks are increasingly more open to Perth. I say more open because most of them have just been closed. Um, closed shop, straight up. Unless you are a long-term client, with great track pretty record. serious reason um, unless you're paul to- blackburn <laughs> let's um, be frank unless oh. you're really a really successful developer with great track record and great relationships with the banks because you can build and sell these things well yep a la blackburn all right let's be frank yep someone like that level it's been pretty hard hasn't it it has been hard it still is hard but it is um there is certainly an increasing appetite that we're seeing from the banks to start look at lending uh, a bit more than they have been in the past on, in the apartment development space. Okay. When it comes to those pre-sales, yep. can you explain when people talk about 100% debt coverage, 120%, 80%, one, where is it right now with the banks? And two, what does that actually mean? Yeah, sure. So if you've got a project where its overall development cost, hypothetically, is $15 million, that includes land, of, of two or three and, and then your consultants, allowances for finance, interest, and then all of your construction costs, then the bank's gonna want a certain proportion of that as equity. That's your money that you put into the deal. But in addition How much to, they normally want? Um, your loan to value ratios, 60 to 70, maybe 75%. So of, of debt, your loan to cost, 
you know, a bit down that because um, cost is less than your value. Than value. But so look, if we're doing a $15 million project on our $2 million site, yes, we've got our $2 million site by putting our money in together. We're still going to need to find maybe another $3 million on top of that yep. to get to our 33% of equity to even get a look in for starters. As a broad rule of thumb, yes. A lot of people are switching off right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Look, it's that's the end of the episode. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, you got to be realistic about it. it. They're large term sheets. When you're, yeah. you're talking, it's a lot of equity, it's a lot of cash. That and often you're not talking about one developer. Often there's multiple investors in any one developer. Even if there's a development group that's kind of the leading marketing sort of entity. But then that's your equity. But then yeah, you're talking ten or eleven million dollars of bank debt. Yeah, and you know, they're not, they're pretty careful. Why don't they just give that to you? Like yeah, when we, when we go and buy a house or do a side-by-side or a house behind a house, yep. it's you need your 20% and then they just give you the rest. You don't have to do pre-sales. Can you explain how that pre-sale coverage of debt yep. works in terms of how many apartments that might translate to? Sure. So if so, the loan-to-value ratios is one measurement. The other one, would, as you're saying, is... The bank goes, okay, we'll give you this debt on the basis you clear these conditions precedent. So $10 million? So $10 million, We the bank goes, right, we want 100% pre-sale coverage of the debt. So if you are borrowing $10 million, they want to see $10 million worth of qualifying pre-sales. Uh-huh. So What's these a qualifying pre-sale? So these, these, are, these are pre-sales that aren't, oh yeah, someone's got an expression of interest and I'm thinking about buying it, you know, I'll come back to you in six months. These are binding, checked by a lawyer, pre-sale contracts where a buyer has committed to and, and, and pay a 10% deposit, generally 10%, to purchase an apartment at completion. Now, why is this important? Why is such a big thing? Uh, of course, the bank's lending you the money on the basis that this development's going to be finished and when it's finished, you can sell it for what you think you can sell it for. So in addition to all the valuations and, and current and, and as if complete valuations and taking a view on the market, the bank wants to see pre-sales because that's their certainty, that completion, there's actually going to be money coming back in the door at a level that we think it's going to be at. If we've got a 35 apartment development and we need to cover $10 million of that, we are selling these apartments, on average, they're worth $500,000. We might need to pre-sell 20 of those 35 and have $5 million in, in equity towards that development, for example. Yep before they actually give us the money to go and build that, that thing in the first place. Yeah, normally it's around 65, 70% of, or 60, 70% of your number of apartments to be pre-sold. So roughly two thirds yeah, of your apartments that lines up. needs to be under contract before you can start construction. So that then therefore makes this next part of this conversation so relevant, you need to have a very strong sales and marketing strategy from early on with this is where a lot of that money into the flyers and the radio uh, ads and the TV ads even uh, comes into play. Uh, it's not just about going and calling your local real estate agent and saying, Steve, we've got 35 apartments. Can you put them on realestate.com? It's a lot more than that, isn't it? Oh, look, it is. Uh, absolutely. But your local real estate agents, whether they're, they're sort of local indiv- individual operators or whether they're you know, got a metro or national presence, you need to be really selective on who you select, and that's the same that goes for when you want to buy a house or you know, who's active in, in that area of the market, both in terms of end product, but location as well. And experience in selling apartments off yeah. the plan, right? Yep. These are not, usually you're not going to the suburb's number one real estate agent even 
to sell your property. You go into a specialized project salesman, right? It, it should it, be. Yeah, that's right. I mean, someone that an agent that specializes in selling, you know, five million dollar houses and is records selling or you know make breaking records at rerun whatever else a couple of months it's fantastic yeah but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're super familiar with or you know processing of, of your pre-sale contracts that sort of thing now or even marketing the idea of because the easy thing that the top agents in the five million dollar house suburbs who win the awards have is they have a product to sell they walk through it they can touch it and feel it and they bring the, the bling right you're selling an idea as a, as yeah, a, as a project yeah yeah and it it, it you know, it's it's hard. It's a big investment for people, and it's going to be there in two years' time, and they haven't even put a ten percent deposit down now. So it's important that people, your sales agent, is familiar with that selling process, but also the the, the contracts that go with it. They're more involved than just a normal O and A. But you touched on before about your marketing material. In addition to your sales agents, sales agency. How much are you paying them? Because they're um, selling lots. Surely they're not getting paid the same as a percentage. To the guy who's selling one. One and a half to one, 1.8%. Yeah. So that's lower than what you'd pay your suburban real estate agent. Yeah. I think from a residential point of view, it is probably close to two or above. Yeah. So why is it less? Um, there's certainly more work involved and, and often they won't get paid their fee until until the back end. And so someone's got to pay their salary in the meantime, you know, the principal of the firm. So there's a lot more involved. There's a lot more involved in the upfront marketing. But having said that, you're you know you're selling thirty or forty, yeah, and so your you know your your gross revenue a lot. Um, is up there, <laughs> yeah, and so um, that's sort of where we're seeing rates fall. You Some put a tender are, in, wouldn't you? And it, it, just like you would tender for a build contract, yep, you're not just going to your local real estate agent or even your local project agent and saying, look, do you want to have this one? There's a formal competitive tender bid a lot of the time, isn't there? Yeah, we like, fight for the work. Yeah, like I mean, like the I mean. Like uh, the design consultants, we'd um, issue requests for proposal. We'd often do the same thing for sales agency. But look, you might have an agent that is really experienced and is is having really good success in selling where you're building your development. And like they're they're the agent for the job. They got the database. And, and you might end up paying over two percent. So it does happen. You might go direct, but yeah, look, typically, unless there's a favorite there, you'd, you'd have a good look around and you'd see who's going to bring the best value to the projects and it wouldn't always be who's the cheapest commission. All right, I cut you off before. Let's get back into the marketing as well. That's a separate expense. The real estate agent doesn't pay for it. Uh, it can be sizable. Selling apartments, as I was talking about before, it, they don't exist, right? They're a design and they're about to be built or under construction. And so it's really important that when the sales agent is one is able to engage with, but once they've engaged with uh, with buyers, they've got the material to help sell the property. So we'd, we'd you know, again, a project this size, you, you'd have a marketing budget of, of two or three percent of of cost or revenue. So you know, on a fifteen million dollar project, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you think, oh, geez, why would you pay so much? That that sounds a bit a bit um, over the top. You need proper high res. You know, renders, for example, you, you know, not basic stuff that that just doesn't look great. They need it needs to be sharp. They look better than reality most of the time. Yeah, I mean, some of them. <laughs> some of them look at oh, hang on, they, they look a bit too good. Yeah, but it's really important good imagery. Obviously, three D videos. Yeah, your fly throughs. Often, you know, have your billboards on site. Um, a, a site uh, display suite works really well. You might have a sea container. Some of these. Yep, things. a sea container or purpose built. Uh, and then within there, of course, you need all your graphics on the wall. You need your, your brochures, and it can't just be some basic thing you print at the office. It's a proper production, 
brochure. So look, every project's different and you certainly don't want to be you know, wasting money. But particularly in Perth's uh, market where it, it's tough getting pre-sales, it, it, it's got to be sharp. Uh, and it's got to be on point. The same goes for your apartment designs, as, as we've talked about in previous sessions. But it, it is a separate cost that's incurred in addition to your sales commission. We need to spend this money, though, because one of the most critical, if not the most critical factor of a development, which mitigates risk of being in the market, is time, right? We need to minimize how yep. long it takes to get from getting that DA, therefore having an approved idea, and then having people buy our idea through the marketing that can take months, if not years. Absolutely. So the last thing you want is to have bought the site, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on getting your, all your consultants to your DA, cost estimates, you change the builders, got your DA, and then it, the project stalls because you're 12 or 18 months in and you haven't got the number of pre-sales that you need to commence construction. We've all seen it around town, right? Yep. There are sites where you've seen marketing billboards up for four years yeah and it's um it's not nice to see because someone's losing money a lot of money um so the, the, the issue there is to course twofold it's one it's burning a hole in your pocket because um you're, you're paying you know interest or uh, and costs and in, you've already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on all this consulting yep and then secondly it comes a point where the project starts to get stale and it just you, you becomes very difficult to convert the last few sales you have to um, start refunding deposits yeah, well, Look, if if the project is not proceeding, then yes, you would you would look to refund deposits. You know, pre-sale contracts will have sun, sunset clauses in them, typically so two and a half or two to three years. If the development's not commenced or substantially commenced by then, then the buyers can terminate. But yeah, if a project's gone stale and it's just clear that it's just not going to happen, then developers will certainly just want to call it and return deposits. But look, pretty difficult because you know heavily invested. And if you're in that point, often that's when you might have to look at alternative funding. So that's when mezzanine funding and other forms of non-bank funding can, can come to the picture. The interest rates are pretty high on those. Yeah, they are. So it's going to cost you more. They'll be often much greater securities. So um, bank funding might be, what, in the fours, five percent? Yep, the three, three to four percent. By the time it's three after four and a half, by the time you wash out a combination of line fee and, Low, and margin, that's the low, that's the cheapest anyone has ever built an apartment look, for it, in the history of Australia. It, right? it absolutely look debt's cheap. If you right? want to build an apartment, it's the cheapest time to do it. Absolutely, if you got your pre-sales. Yeah, if you got pre-sales, if <laughs> you can't get your pre-sales, yep. then you still want to push on to get this thing built, which people would argue is might not be the smartest idea if you can't get the pre-sales in the first place. Uh, that mezzanine finance can be, you know, up at what, 9%, 10%? Absolutely, yeah, around 10, 10, 10, 10 plus percent. But if you're two or three pre-sales away, then often it is important and it's something worth seriously considering to avoid your project stalling and going stale. Mm. But you're going to pay two to three times more for it. For and a short period of time. For a short period of time, if you can get the pre-sales and your bank can then top up the rest, otherwise it might be for during all of construction. And that erodes profit. Yep. And that's a premium price you have to pay just to yep. keep things along the, the road. That's it. And your bank will have conditions around your return on costs must be more than a certain percent. So whether you're willing to accept less profit, for example, to pay for alternative finance, the bank might go, well, hang on, that's costing you actually $300,000. Your return on costs is now under 16%, which is a, is a condition precedent. You might be happy with that with 14% profit, but we're not because our... our margin of error our buffer margins less so you run into problems there where you can start to 
find yourself in a tricky situation where it, it can be difficult to get out of. You've just referenced something that we possibly should have in the due diligence stage when we're just looking for a site is that profitability parameter that we should all be talking about. Uh, when we look into the small scale subdivision, which is obviously what uh, a lot of people uh, can relate to, we really are looking for high teens into the 20s as a return on the project, return on costs, right? Yep. And because we can leverage quite highly, we're also looking for return on, inve- return on equity a lot higher than that. Given that the quantum of profit we can make in that time frame is a lot higher for apartments, is that then leading to being able to have a slightly slightly lower return on the on the cost of the development itself? So there's a couple of things in there in terms of differences. Obviously, it's higher amounts. You're because you're getting so much more debt as a percentage of your equity. It turbocharges the return on your equity leverage. So that that's that's a good thing, right? Uh, but of course, it's going to take you much longer to construct the building than doing a subdivision. So, so your IRR goes down. Yep, that's it. So typically, the bank's going to want to see 15, 16, 17% return on cost and internal rates of returns in you know in, in the 20s, low to high. So because of the impact of time, if it's a two to three year delivery, then your you know, 15 to 20% return on cost after leveraging, your internal, your annual, annualized return uh, might not be a huge amount more than, than that amount in, in, in your 20s, for example. Now, you always want it to be as high as possible, but being competitive in buying a site, you want to pay as much as you can justify paying for a site to maximize your chance of winning it. Well, at the end of the day, whether you're paying $1.9 or $2.3 million for that site, given the yield of what you would be building at the end of the day, the funny part of it all is two, three, four hundred thousand dollars really shouldn't change the project that much. You, you, you're looking at making millions of dollars here. What really is the biggest determinant on the profitability of this project, as I understand it, is how expensive is the deck going to be, and there, and how long is it going to have to be paid off, and what can we sell these apartments for in the first place yeah. as a multiple of how many apartments we've got. Yeah, absolutely. Therefore, the land portion is actually a pretty small portion of it. Look, it is. I mean, more often than not, you know, yes, there's some good profit to be made, but often the developers aren't making huge profits. They're just enough to get it to be delivered because really, more often than not, your developer's happy to take 16 or 17% profit over, say, potentially 20% if it means they're what they're having to sell the apartments for is less. So they reduce the cost of the apartments, increases your sales rates and, and chances of, of, you know, of getting this development delivered. And shortens the time frame so that you're in yep. and out. The, you know what's more profitable than the idea of a million dollars? Actually selling an apartment for $800,000 and it's gone. Absolutely. And you know, a, a, a profitable development on paper is, is just that. It's, it's nothing until it's something. And so you want to reduce your risk as much as possible. There's already enough moving parts. And so that's where that, that, that would, be, would be balanced out in terms of accepting a lesser return, but it's still a bankable level of return to avoid risking overcooking um, the cost of your apartments and not being able to sell them. But what you are saying before about land purchase price, yeah, if you're buying land for, for $2 million, well, plus will take 10% is $200,000, right? But if your gross revenue of all your apartments on that site is $15 million, well, plus or minus 10% there, that's when it starts to make a pretty serious difference. So um, at each stage of the process, you really need to get your numbers right. But yeah, be prudent. Be prudent, be realistic, seek advice from, from your, your valuers and your town planners and your architects and your, your, 
your project managers and, and others in the space to progress each stage very prudently, diligently and uh, being aware of you know the, the challenges to come. Luke Parker, thank you very much for coming in and chatting our third episode in this series about built form development. Uh, mate, next episode, we're going to get right into the nitty gritty of tendering out that construction contract, which is the fun stuff, I guess, and, and getting that thing built. Absolutely. Uh, looking forward to it. Okay, suburb spotlight time now. We are talking about my hometown of Morley. I'm a Morley boy by heart, by history. We've got one agent to chat to. It's my man, Jason Whiteman. Thank you very much for coming in to chat Morley, mate. Thanks for the invite. Jason, I could probably do this episode myself, to be frank, uh, but uh, I like to get a, another perspective because there's obviously a sales side to every conversation with a suburb and that suburb-specific understanding of where the sales are sitting right now, who's buying, who's selling, I can't tell you that and that's what our agent is for. So, Jason, before we get to that position, can you give us a little bit of information as to before I was born, before you were born, where did Morley start? What did it mean to people and what was that lifestyle before the Galleria was the Galleria? Morley today sits at about 12,500 homes. The age bracket, there are nearly 50% of the occupants or homeowners in there sit between the age range of 35 to 60. Morley itself was a lot of swampland and it's actually infilled, reclaimed land, particularly along the, the runs of Brunette. Avenue and Walter Road prior to that was uh, very market garden based mm. and you can see that with a lot of the 1970s built homes with the arches out the front and um, a diminishing number of white lions on the letterboxes so the European influence was definitely a lot of that, there. A lot of the Morley Italian house. Very much so, very popular. They're not great development properties for me to take on but I, I love the character of them and I love how people are retaining them and, and giving them a bit of a lick of 2020 lifestyle because they're good, they're well-built homes. Italian homes always are if you ask the people who built them, that's for sure. But a lot of that opportunity there with those sorts of homes, Morley has changed in the last 25 years from being single residential real estate to the ARCO change at R25. That happened about 20, 25 years ago. And subsequent to that, we've obviously had the R40 rezonings as well. Every block in Morley that's 700 square metres or larger is a potential development block. And that's pretty unique. There aren't many suburbs that are family suburbs that are also subdivision potential. It's really an open slather. We'll talk about it later. It all really depends on the residual value of the existing home the position of the existing home and the, and the frontage. That really does determine whether you've got a good development block or uh, less premium opportunity there. Well, it certainly gives you a lot more uh, flexibility and scope. Do we keep the original front home and put a three-metre driveway down the side to, to access the back block or do we have that 18 to 20 metres across the front where it may be more feasible to knock the home down and create two street frontage opportunities? You've got that demographic, that price point there that will pay for some really nice 4 by 2s that would sit on or even three by twos with a theatre that would sit on that 700 square metres to 1,000 square metres and they paid for it. And have done. So if we go back not too long ago to, to 2014, a standard three-bedroom, one-bathroom, 1950s home on 750 square metres on the western side of Tonkin Highway, they were selling in the 600 to $625,000 bracket. Yeah, and how things have moved, hey? Very, very different. What happened in terms of that price point with Morley? Why have we seen such a drop? Is it because we've got so much volume, so much variety and a bit more density than most family suburbs. Am I wrong? No, you're 100% correct. Why, why being the question though, 
is because it became so attractive in, in the rise of the market between the GFC in 2010 and then to 2014, which was our last peak. The marketplace exploded because of proximity to town, 11Ks to the to the CBD, uh, the Swan Valley, Tonkin Highway and the airport routes. Everything was already there. So we came off a low base. It was that attractive. The market was going well. People thought I can not just buy a property that close to town, but it's a development opportunity as well. And it was accessible at price point as Extremely well for most people. Extremely accessible for yeah. the time. But unfortunately, when it corrected, it's corrected just as aggressively. So you think it overcooked more than most suburbs at the time? Without question. Yeah, well, you make some really good points there to give some context to it. Another good reason is that people aren't taking up the development option as much as they were five years ago either. We haven't seen a lot of building comparatively in Morley and a lot of people taking up development blocks and doing anything with it than we were back in those days. Definitely, and that's very obvious out there in the marketplace today. And I, I think one of the reasons for that is the cost of building a three-bedroom, two-bathroom, 140-square-metre property at the rear of an existing home hasn't changed in five years. Not much. The return has, though, and mm. it's changed to the negative. Mm, very much so. The, the arbitrage of building just isn't there like it was five years ago for a house behind a house option and to be frank whilst there are some r40 opportunities in morley they're pretty rare and they're pretty specific just around the galleria aren't they extremely so we're in the inner city centro marketplace next to the galleria and we've got some r60 slash 100 uh, zonings along there as well particularly along walter road and collier road one thing i know about morley though is that given its vast variety of properties from the high 300s into still the low six, low and even high 600s. It's one of those suburbs where because of that variety, if you do put in a really high spec nice home, there's always going to be a buyer still for it. You won't, you can't overcapitalize that easy in Morley. Beautiful street off Walter Road, just uh, just east of um, the gallery, about 500 meters away, is a street called Hascombe Way. A street frontage block there of approximately 500 square metres had a huge two-storey home on it, a gabled roof, mezzanine top floor. The finish on it was absolutely stunning, $880,000 sale price. When was that? Uh, that settled about four months ago. Yeah, so it just shows how much variety there is in one suburb because in the back corners up in the back of Beachborough, Morley, you can be selling in the 300s. For 700 or even nearly a 1,000 square meters of land, it's ridiculous, the yes. variation. Yep. And that's probably one thing to note in Morley. It's, it's a big suburb. It's not characterized by one single type of buyer or owner or demographic. You've got Embleton Morley. You've got Dinella Morley. You've got Bedford Morley. You've got Galleria Morley. You've and got Beachborough Morley. Morley as well, it's correct. nuts, isn't it? Well, it's just a, the evolution of urban sprawl. So the original Morley, which we see as being around the Galleria and immediately to the Galleria, once we get on the eastern side of Tonkin Highway, along the old Beachborough Road, you've, on the original old Morley um, on the other side in Turon Street, Maritana Street and so forth, then the subdivision back in the late 80s, directly opposite there, um, was called Somerset Gardens. And that's where we saw the big seven, eight, nine hundred square metre blocks with these beautiful um, dark, uh, dark brown brick homes plotted straight in the middle of these blocks mm. because the zoning back then had no intention of becoming um, a multi-dwelling. Yep. And then further north to that, north of Banara Road, off Black Boy Way, was a subdivision called Karamara Estate, which bordered onto Beachborough off Blue Gum Road and Black Boy Road. They're well-kept homes. Not many people sell that often around there as well. I think a couple of those streets have even won the city of Bayswater's uh, best-kept streets. Uh, so, and especially when you think about it, it probably 
looks more to the Karama shopping center, uh, shopping village, or the Charlie's shopping village there. Uh, they're, they're their own precinct. So I really think that that part of Morley up along Tongan Highway should be its own suburb. Not Beachborough, not Morley, something else. Absolutely. Maybe like they did with Kiara being an extension uh, of Lockridge or an excision of Lockridge. But no, certainly agree that the opportunities uh, with those particular properties too is that you're getting the seven, eight, nine hundred square metre block with a 200, 250 square metre home. Mm. And you're still buying that today at that 450 to 500 bracket. Mm. Now, that property on the other side of Tonkin Highway becomes a triplex block. You're now talking $650,000 for the same property. Yep. Uh, let's talk about the lifestyle choices, lifestyle options in Morley in terms of schools, uh, local sporting facilities. It's a big suburb. There's a lot of schools. There's a lot of places to send your kids and there's a lot of places to keep them busy. Two senior high schools being Hampton High School up on Morley Drive and then John Forrest High School down on Brune Avenue. And both now becoming more colleges than high schools as well, mm. um, specialising in the Cricket Academy at John Forrest High School, speech and drama, Italian and French classes at Hampton High School and the like. Primary schools are endless. There are seven so I many. from everyone. Yeah. A lot of kids still going into Chisholm, Perth College, Trinity College as well. They certainly are, and also um, John Septimus Row mm. up on Beachborough Road, which is on the Morley Beachborough border. So um, some very, very well, well-known well and renowned uh, private schools, and also which is the attraction to Morley, so that the, the students can travel there uh, when we're living locally. There is a lot of inquiry, particularly around John Forrest, where people from Bedford back to Morley is a $200,000 difference in products and they just want the proximity for the children to be able to go to school. Um, but at the same time, they still want proximity. They don't want to miss out on the access and the egress to, to the CBD and, and the other surrounds that we have mentioned. How do you think that the proposed Metronet Morley train station is going to have an effect on Morley itself? Is obviously running up Tonkin Highway, splitting what we spoke about before, the two sides of, of Morley. What do you think the impact's going to be in terms of redevelopment and prices and those sort of things? Nothing short of positive. Kudos to the government to to finally say that we're going to have the train station. Mm. It's needed because Bayswater is just a little bit of a drive. Far too far, and it doesn't solve the problem of eliminating cars and traffic off the road. Mm. So to have the Naranda train station and then a kilometre down the road, the Morley train station, which will be at the back of Watton Reserve or the Morley Windmill Soccer Club, rezoning will follow on that. They're planning that and they're talking about that now. So we will see density around there, and rightly so. Mm. And I think that's where a big opportunity for people buying on the beach side of Morley we'll see some big price uplift because it is a bit cheaper at the moment to buy in there on those older blocks. Look, no question. I think directly and indirectly, um, those prices will change. Mm. There's no question when you're that close to the facility. And a brand new facility that's never been there before. We're moving and transcending closer to, to I see, the lifestyle in Melbourne and that is that the value of your property is based on how many train stops away from Flinders Street Station you are. Buyers and sellers, I know it's a big suburb, it's quite broad, but can you give me your archetypal client as a seller for me? Who would be that standard client that you would get on a weekly basis calling you to sell their house in Morley? Because of the, the opportunity for development, what we're finding is most of the sellers 
for example, when they get into their later life, they've been on the original 750 square metre block. The kids have all grown up and moved out. And a lot of these times, these, these sellers are grandparents. They've been going to the same doctor, the same baker, the same butcher for 40 years. They're not going to change. Mm. They're either selling the back of their block or they're selling the old home and they're moving into a brand new three bed, two bathroom unit front or back duplex half, the first brand new home that they've ever owned in their life, as opposed to the one from 45 years ago. So they're downsizing within the suburb? Staying within the suburb and putting money in the bank as well. Mm, Okay. That's a key and important point, isn't it, to make, is that if you're going to be creating downsizer products, you need to be able to be selling them to people who are selling their homes for more than the price of that downsizer product. That's become more challenging over the last 12 months particularly, but still is definitely achievable and still is happening. Well, I think it is, the, the benefit about Morley as a suburb is because there's so many price points, uh, you can sell a brand new villa at a price point in the, look, the mid to high 400s, low 500s and still have a big percentage of people who can sell their home in Morley for five 600 and those sales are certainly still being achieved. It's certainly not doom and gloom. It's just change. That's yeah. all. Okay, let's talk price points. Quickly, could you run me through what the cheapest thing you could buy in Morley is as a as a where and a what, and then run me up a couple of rungs to how expensive it is, like the example you gave before. Sure. Cheapest property that I have seen sold, I'm not going to put my name to this one, was a two-bedroom duplex half on Camboon Road, which just sold for $205,000. Property needed a little bit of tidying up and a little bit of work, but it's still Cheap, a though. double brick and tile, two bedrooms, 400 square metres of land, mm. which is incredible. Mm. The flip side to there is a property on about 600 square metres today in Ardar Street, which I believe sits on the market at 720000 mm. And that's a rear duplex half. Okay. Subdivision stuff, let's be really specific here. You said already before R25 means that most of these properties can at least be split in half, either side by side or front and back. That also is still the same for a quarter acre, isn't it? You're not really getting a triplex out of an R25 quarter acre. When you start talking a quarter acre, you're going to be talking, uh, again, property on the uh, the eastern side of Tonkin Highway. Yeah, the northeast um, pocket. Absolutely yep. you are. So, but again, they're big 20 and 22 metre frontages. Sometimes the best return for those sellers is going to be, or the developer is to chop the block straight down the middle. Yeah, There's understand. a lot to be said for street frontage. Mm. Last question, Jason. This has been a fantastic chat. What's the median house price? 435000 If you had $435,000 in your pocket right now, what would you buy? I'd be buying a three-bedroom, one-bathroom home on 750-odd square metres, one where I had at least three metres down the side to access the back and I'd do the development. You'd do a house behind a house if you could? House renovate behind the front? a house, without question. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Mate, thank you very much for your time. appreciate it. I'm sure we'll talk again re- more in the future. I look forward to it. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!